Last week, we concentrated on the account of the man who was sick of the palsy uh, and who was brought into the house where Jesus was staying by taking off the roof on behalf of his friends. That is, his friends took off the roof. He was on his bed. And as we saw, the healing that took place was done by Jesus forgiving his sins. We saw that the when the sins were forgiven, then in this particular case, the karmic knot that had been responsible for the disease was dissolved and therefore the man was cured. And this is the way in which uh, Jesus did exercise most of his healing. Of course, we also recognize that the consequences of that did not just disappear, but they did go onto him. And eventually, uh, he suffered greatly on the cross, perhaps as a direct result. We saw a very similar incident in the case of, of the lifetime of Baba Sawan Singh, when a Gangu, the drunken robber, uh, again recognized Baba Sawan Singh as God made flesh and begged him to forgive his sins, which he did do in token of his faith. As he said specifically to him, your faith has saved you. And we saw that then Gangu took initiation and although he did not, was not easy for him, uh, he did follow the straight path from that point on. Today I want to consider a little further the question of forgiveness of sins, which is perhaps the main job of the masters, because from it all else follows. Blake understood or grasped that the essence of Christianity was the forgiveness of sins. This is something that many Christians over the years would be very surprised to find, because many people think that the essence of Christianity is moral living, or a certain kind of theological belief, or something like that, or participation in certain ceremonies, etc. But as a matter of fact, Blake was very close to putting his finger on the essence of things uh, with that particular insight. And I would say that the essence of the path also is the forgiveness of sins, and that this comes about it's a reciprocal process, as the Master would say, which comes about, in other words, the recognition that the seeker has when he recognizes the Master, that joyful recognition that we have been reading about the last two times, on Sunday and then on Monday night, comes about because in his heart of hearts the seeker understands that this person whom he has met is competent to forgive him. And this means that he has a chance that the karmic knot is being untied or dissolved and he will be given an opportunity to become something different than he has been. I don't mean that the seeker understands this intellectually but that this is what he or she feels in his heart. There are many instances in the Gospels of this, and I'm 
not going to read many of them. They're all very similar to the one that we read last week of the man who was cured of the palsy. They do not always involve physical cures, as we said last week. The healing ministry of Jesus, which had several contributing factors, has probably been exaggerated that there are not more than 12 specific instances of his healing listed in the Gospels, apart from vague references. And uh, that in some, and also in some cases, they came about uh, simply because the person came into his presence. We saw also that the modern masters, despite their objection to healing, and despite their disclaimers of their doing it, um, do in fact heal very often, although not as often as we would be led to believe if we simply read the Gospels. Uh, the question of forgiveness of sins as the, perhaps as the main point of the Master's mission, okay, because it's the starting point from which all else follows, hinges around the fact that none of us deserve anything. And oftentimes people have approached the Master or have written to him and said something like, uh, I don't deserve initiation. Well, that's true, because none of us do. And it is a gift of grace. And grace means mercy, and mercy means forgiveness. And the, the whole emphasis on belief in the living master that we find in the Gospels emphasized so heavily is simply this, that the person who is in a position to benefit by what the master has to give, person who is ready to receive something from him will know in which direction to turn his face. And he will be able to recognize that this particular person can help him. And he will do it not theologically, but instinctively. He will just know, just as Gangu knew, that somehow he was not going to let go of Samhain Singh's feet until Samhain Singh forgave him. And there are many similar stories in the Gospel. The other part of it is, of course, the thing that confuses us, I think, when we try to assess the path or to understand it in terms of, of our daily life and of, of what we know from uh, reading the Bible and of the scriptures, is that there are two aspects to it. This is also emphasized in the Gospels, too, that the Masters forgive us and give us freely out of grace, but then they also make demands on us. And the demands that they make on us are of a very different order than the law that is ultimately inspired by the negative power. Um, it is something that proceeds from that recognition and forgiveness and the love that comes from that. When Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, this is what he meant. So once we recognize, receive the forgiveness, and begin to love <coughs> because it is he who first loves us, our love is only reciprocal, as Master Kripal always used to say. Um, as this happens, the fruit of this, the proof of the fact that this is bearing fruit in our lives, that it's really happening, is that we will live up to the commandments. But it's very important 
under the old regime, we might say, under the law of judgment, the law of Kao, their law exists. We keep it. If we don't keep it, we are punished. Since nobody can keep it, by definition, uh, then everyone is punished. And that's the origin of the law of karma. And that is why it is absolutely essential that the true father forgive us. Because within the confines of the law, there is no way out. It is, it is very cleverly constructed under the guise of justice and morality to keep us bound down. Once forgiveness takes place, grace is there, uh, then it becomes possible for a way out. But the commandments that the Master gives are not, strictly speaking, although occasionally, and as we will see today, uh, sometimes they are given in the old terms, as they are given as though they are conditional. In fact, they are not. We may break them, and the Master will not stop loving us. Neither will he uh, punish us except that he may give us remedial kind of treatments, as we all, or many of us know, uh, which will enable us to learn something. From that point of view, he may uh, deal with us in that way. But he will not punish us for the sake of punishing us, and we will not, in the long run, lose. Now, this implies another thing, which is trust. And I think that forgiveness necessarily implies trust that um, Master forgives someone, gives them the greatest gift that is possible to give, that is to say, part of his own essence, which is what happens when he initiates someone. That means that he is trusting them with that. And as we proceed along the path, I suppose that people's experience tends to differ um, but in my own case, I have found that the trust of the Master is absolutely incomprehensible and that of all of the things that have moved me, made me understand his love, made me cry, made me uh, unbelievably grateful, is his trust, beginning way back when uh, he trusted me with this ashram and then refused to take it uh, for years and years, saying, I take your word as deed. That was a tremendous gift of trust, which I wanted very badly to live up to. And then he trusted me again with the editorship of the magazine, which on worldly terms was ridiculous. And I think that all of us, on one level or another, in one way or another, can say very similar things. So the point is that this happens because the Master cares, which means that God cares. And uh, that is why this is the vast difference between the demand that the Master makes on us, which come mixed up in one parcel with forgiveness, grace, and trust, and are there so that we will grow through them and be able to get more grace and trust and to love more, and to become open, receptive, and a free and loving human being. And the law of the negative power, which exists only for the purpose of keeping us trapped within our own limitations. So, 
there are certain sections of the Gospels in which this particular thought is expressed very fully. And also, it then goes into the ways in which we are supposed to show the fruit of that. And I'm going to read those sections today. In a few weeks, I'm not sure just when, we will be going into the Sermon on the Mount very intensively, which of course is the, you might say, the codification of the commandments that if we love him, we will keep. And we will, as we look into them, we will uh, notice the differences between the commandments of the positive power and the commandments of the negative power. One surprising thing is that from a worldly point of view, the commandments of the positive are much harder. But we will go into that uh, then. And this is chapter 15 of the Gospel according to St. Luke, which we have not read from much in this series. Luke's Gospel is generally not as reliable, uh, most scholars think, as Mark or even as John. Uh, it is later been literarily written more than the others and uh, therefore not quite as trustworthy. But there is a huge section of Luke which is not found in any other gospel which is intensely interesting and uh, which shows, throws a lot of light on the teachings of Jesus, especially in comparison to the teachings of the modern masters. As we have seen, they are identical. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And we mentioned a couple of weeks ago or some time back who publicans and sinners are. The publicans, of course, are the tax collectors, the representatives in most cases of the Roman state, considered traitors by the ordinary people. And the sinners are prostitutes, a euphemism for prostitutes and people connected with them. So these are the lowest of the low, as we pointed out before, the bottom the absolute dregs. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he finds it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. There is, of course, an irony there. Who is there so just that needs no repentance? But the point is that the people he was talking to considered that they were in this category. So he's saying, all right, you people are very good, and that's a good thing. But these lost souls over here, when they repent, and implied is they become much closer to the Father than you are now. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. 
And he said, a certain man had two sons. And this is, of course, a very famous parable, parable of the prodigal son, which Master Kripal has quoted on a number of occasions. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, which we need not worry about, by the way, as to why this is in there. This has all the earmarks of a, of a proverbial expression uh, for this kind of thing. And as we have seen, if we had the gospel according to the Ebionites in its fullness rather than in fragments, um, all of the references to meat in the gospels according to ancient testimony were vegetarian references in that. So this is much later than that gospel and uh, is very likely edited from the point of view of the editor. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Tremendously moving story. And one of the reasons that it affects people so much is that it is a, a very exact parable of the soul's condition. A lot of people, some people, when hearing the story, tend to sympathize with the elder brother and feel that it's not very fair what the father is doing but that's precisely the point because whoever the elder brother represents and there again Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who would consider themselves in the elder brother's position that they 
served God for many years, had never transgressed any commandments, and so forth. Uh, and yet Jesus prefers the company of the tax collectors and the prostitutes to them, regardless of, of what they really st- where they really stand apart from their own self-image. The fact is that all of us are in the condition of the prodigal son. That the prodigal son, the lost son, represents all the souls that have come into the cycle of birth and death. The far country is the physical world. And our taking our inheritance and wasting it with riotous living is precisely what we do. And uh, when we run out, when our good karma, you might say, is spent, and uh, we begin to reap what we have sown, then if we are perceptive, we recognize that... uh, there's still our Father is there, and we can go to Him. It takes us a while, but most of us do it. Most of us who are here have done it, and uh, we ask Him. And the fact is that, as the Master says, if anyone takes one step toward me, I take a million steps toward him. And this is exactly what is pictured here, because God cares. The universe cares, and it is incorrect to think of or to have a picture of the universe as uncaring, despite the fact that in the lower worlds the operation of the law of karma and the difficulties in measuring up to the demands of the negative power do make us feel that way. So the Father's reaction to the Son's coming is precisely the way, Jesus is saying, God feels when someone recognizes that he can be forgiven. And this is the point that we are all in that position, we all need to be forgiven. None of us needs fair treatment. We've had fair treatment. Fair treatment is precisely what we want to get out of. If we are treated as we are deserved, as we have deserved, then we'd be nowhere. And it's important, I think, both for the sake of our own humility and also for understanding of the way Master deals with others. Because it very often happens that we will not understand um, the Master's motivations or his dealings, we will sometimes perhaps find ourselves in the position of the elder brother without meaning to be, and we will see that the Master um, treats someone in a way that we don't understand at all. We would say they are not deserving. On one of the tapes from 1955, the question is cut off of the tape, but it's quite obvious from Master's response that the person asked him uh, why he, what his criteria was for initiating people and why he accepted some people who are undeserving. And he said, look here, what is that to you? What is that to you? If the father wants to give out to his children, what is that to you? And he quotes uh, from the Gospels stories similar to the ones we've just read. It is said that when Baba Salan Singh went to Master Kripal Singh's village in Sayyad Kasran, now in Pakistan, and gave satsang there, that the local schoolmaster um, on the final day said to him, I understand why you give initiation to the people who are deserving, to good people, but why do you give it to those who are not deserving, who are not good people? Apparently, he had not approved of some of the people that the master had accepted. And the master said to him, Master Sawan Singh, said, I will tell you, that I was not deserving when Baba Jamal Singh gave me initiation. So there's no question of deserving. Okay? None of us deserve anything. 
Whatever we get is a gift of grace. And therefore we should be both grateful ourselves for whatever we have got, the forgiveness that we have been given, and also not hold it against others if the Master seems to be giving them perhaps more than he is giving us at the time, which is the other aspect of the story, and is, of course, the way that the Pharisees felt. Ironically, of course, the Pharisees, the same treatment was open to them had they asked for it. But because they persisted in seeing themselves as righteous people, Jesus treated them as righteous people, that is, not as sinners who needed to repent. And therefore, he didn't give them any grace because they didn't think that they needed it. So it is important to approach the Master from this point of view. Now, the question of forgiveness is not only from the Master to us, and this is implicit in this story too. In the very next story, in chapter 16, which Jesus tells, is puzzling to people, to many people. Uh, It's a curious story, and yet its position really explains it. He said also unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him, and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore, that is eighty. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Now that's a curious story. It's called the parable of the unjust steward. And uh, people have puzzled over it. It appears that the steward's boss is praising his dishonesty, which from some points of view appeared that he was stealing from him because the money, after all, was owed to him. This is a total misunderstanding of the meaning of the story because it's a parable and it does not follow through in, in the worldly affairs necessarily, word for word. The point is, what the steward is doing is he is forgiving those debtors. Now, it's true that the debtors owe to the Lord, but the steward is acting on behalf of the Lord and by falsifying their accounts, by not seeing, in other words, by deliberately closing his eyes to the fact that they owe so much, he makes it makes them, in fact, owe less than that. In other words, he makes it happen because he is in a position to do that. <coughs> And the Lord commends him because it's a parable and in reality the Lord wants those debts to be forgiven. The steward is both on one level as the master who has the capacity and the authority to forgive sins just like this. But on the other level he's also us because uh, as Jesus says elsewhere, those who forgive 
Well, I'll read it word for word. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There it's worded in the legalistic way that I mentioned earlier, but in, in context it's clear that the point is that if we are going to show the fruit of forgiveness, that we are forgiven in our own lives, we have to do it by forgiving others. And there is no way to do that except by not seeing, in a way. I don't mean that we pretend if others are doing something wrong, it is not a question of pretending that they are not doing it. It's a question of, in our assessment of that, simply assessing it as less than it is. And uh, this is perhaps a difficult thing to grasp. It's perhaps a more difficult thing to live up to. And probably none of us here have done it. But uh, nonetheless, this is what is required. In the talk of Master Kripal Singh that we heard in the morning satsang this morning, he says, see no evil, hear no evil, think no evil, talk no evil. This is what is meant. See no evil, hear no evil. If we are seeing and hearing in the sense that we are taking in what we perceive to be as evil, then how can we forgive? Because we will be obsessed with what we are receiving. So, the other part of it is, as Master Kapal used to lay so much emphasis on, is along with forgiving comes forgetting. And this is in another thing that is brought out here. When he tells him, tells him to write 50 measures instead of 100, he is forgetting that those, that other 50 measures is due. And uh, that's what the Master does with us. When he initiates us, he forgets, or he fixes it, we might say, in kind of a bald way, fixes it so that God forgets that which we have done, which makes us undeserving. It is as though it did not exist. And there is no forgiveness without forgetting. And uh, as Master Kripal said, he who can forget is a very strong man. I need not, I think there is nothing more basic in all the commandments of the Masters than this particular uh, teaching. Master Kripal laid great emphasis on it, Sound Singh laid great emphasis on it, and I don't think that there has been one single uh, aspect of the commandment part of the teaching that Sanchi has laid more emphasis on than this. Done in this way. In our mind, we falsify the accounts. We make them less than what they are. And in that way, we can indeed forgive. The story that was read on Monday night in connection, the woman in the story with Baba Salansing read this from the Bible. Uh, if you recall, there was a number of people from Nepal came to see Sawan Singh and some of them touched his feet, which he did not like, but they still did it. And one woman cried, washed his feet with her tears and cried onto them. And uh, one of the Europeans complained about it and said that this was a degradation of human nature, human dignity. And then an American woman in the party 
took a Bible and read this section, which I'm now going to read. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, that is to say a prostitute, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat, that is to say at food, remember that meat does not mean meat in King James Version, that the English word meat meant just plain food, actually it meant grain or meal for a long time. Then it came to mean generally food and finally flesh food, uh, possibly reflecting a radical change in eating habits. When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and to wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now in the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath wiped my feet with tears and washed them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint. But this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Again, the, the representation of the same basic idea. Here, the, 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 some people have complained or find, find difficulty with the progression of thought here. Is it true that uh, the logic, they feel that the logic is a little distorted. Her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. In other words, is she loving because her sins are forgiven, or uh, are her sins forgiven before she loved? But this is pedantry. There is no, uh, there's no difficulty at all in figuring out what is happening here. The woman has recognized, in the same way as in other instances that we have been reading, she has recognized without asking, her whole life is asking, her whole being is asking, and she is sitting at the feet of the living master and relating to him in the way that he is meant to be related to. And because she understands and recognizes his ability to forgive her, then she is forgiven. And this is, the beauty of it is, and again, this is something that we must never forget, that the only criteria when we talk about being ready for initiation, and apart from the question of being worthy, which as we have seen, none of us are anyway, 
But as Master Kripal Singh very specifically stated on a number of occasions, a person is ready when he wants it. There is no other criteria. It's true that we have to want it enough to give some indication of it in our life. We have to give up eating flesh and so forth, make some effort to keep the Master's commandments. But that is only as a matter of objective proof, you might say, that we want it. And if the Master knows, if he sees that somebody in his heart wants it that much, he may not even require the other ahead of time because he will know that they want it that badly. And other times he may require it. Anyway, that is the beauty of it. The way that grace works is that it is a question of those who want it are able to benefit from it. If if someone does not want it, then there is no point in giving it to him because he will not make any use of it. And uh, it truly hinges on that. And this is the meaning, as I've tried to make clear in previous weeks, this is the ultimate esoteric meaning of um, the whole question of believing in a given master. That when he is moving about on earth, he does have the capacity, the authority to forgive sins and to work in our lives that which the forgiveness of sins implies, to give us the new birth and to take us up ultimately. And by recognizing that he has this authority, by seeing that it's to him that we have to look, that is the meaning of having faith in him. And by asking him for it and getting it is the meaning of belief in him. And uh, when we get it, then it begins to work. We will continue next week. <clears throat>